Welcome to The View from the Front. My name is Stan, and this is the September 21st edition. If you are new to the show, let me say as background that I'm a proud moderate. Quite frankly, those on the far right, those on the far left, both sides really get on my nerves. Because if you kept up with politics very long, you probably know that those who are the loudest and the most stern, they often keep progress from happening. Politics government, that is about compromise. That is about taking steps in the direction and not always getting what you want. It's not a real popular thing to say in America these days, but that's the reality. A little about myself, besides being a proud moderate, I covered the news for more than 10 years as a journalist, even owning a small local newspaper for nine years in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Prior to that, and prior to getting a journalism degree, Spent four years in the Marines carrying a rifle. Spent that time in the infantry. Every week I do three things. I cover hotspots and defense news happening around the world that could affect the United States. I definitely bring up our troops in any major deployments or situations that they are involved in. I also try to unite our country. And finally, I always share plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end of each episode because I really want to help encourage you, help make a positive impact if I can at all. So that's what we do here. Hope you really enjoy the show. Hey, before we get into the defense news that I'm going to talk about, let me just mention some college football, can I? It seems like that's pretty much what everyone is talking about, especially Colorado State, Deion Sanders. I'm kind of getting on that bandwagon. I don't know how deep they are, but it is pretty inspiring what he's doing there and his constant videos of motivation and inspiration, obviously, I try to share that stuff every week, and I really feed on that kind of stuff, so I'm really digging that, but I wanted to make a broader point, which is, for those who have listened for a while, you know I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and you can't be from Knoxville, Tennessee and not be a huge Tennessee Vol fan, so, you know, I'm 46 years old by the time you guys hear this, I've got a birthday this week, but I've spent my entire life cheering on the Vols, and for the longtime listeners who've been listening for a while, you guys know I kind of went through quite the transition beginning back in about November and you know it's funny I have a kind of a complicated past with Christianity and I had mostly moved away from it but my stepson's 14 and we wanted to give him a bit of an option and a little little bit more than just an introduction about church so we decided to start taking him to church and I was mostly going to go through the motions and um to say the least, that didn't work out as planned, and it kind of gripped me, so to speak. And so I've been on this really deep religious journey for the past 10 months or so, back to the faith of my childhood that was kind of forced down my throat. And, you know, we all have complicated things that happened to church and happened to us as kids. Regardless, um, during the past 9, 10 months, obviously you guys know uh, my mother got a stage four cancer diagnosis. We unfortunately lost that battle as a family and still going through a lot with my dad as far as some memory memory issues and stuff. So it's a pretty taxing burden for the family. But during these past nine or 10 months, I've been digging deeper into my faith and just trying to, you know, figure things out. And it's, my faith has been a huge strength to me. And I'm not really trying to talk about that right now, but what I wanted to talk about is with college football really revving up. One of the biggest games of the year is University of Tennessee versus 
the Florida Gators. Most years, they clean our clock. And I thought maybe this year we'd do okay. But interestingly, I've been so deep into my journey into faith and just the regular responsibilities of, you know, trying to be a decent stepfather, trying to do well at my day job. We've been really busy with lots of overtime, probably the busiest we've been there in three years. Still trying to chase the, the author dream and do what I can to make this podcast good. And so I hadn't really followed football this year. Football has seemed kind of almost hollow, and it's so interesting because UT goes down to Florida, loses, it's ugly, and I had a friend that I work with who went down there. I had a family member who went down there. So these, these two folks both traveled to Florida to watch the game, and obviously that wasn't a fun experience to watch your team lose in a year that you're supposed to win. And I was thinking how... It just kind of feels nice to not be so deep and involved. And so I used to, you know, I'd know all the players and all the arguing about the play calls and the what call the referee may make. You get so wrapped into it. It almost becomes, you know, a, like a really deep part of your life if you let it. And I got to say that it has felt really good this year because... Barely kept up with the game. I purposely almost didn't want to watch it. I j- hadn't kept up a lot of with football this year, and I told myself, if I watch this game, I'm going to get too into it. And I had some day job work I needed to do to get caught up and uh, to be a good employee. And I said, you know, I'm going to try not to watch it. I'm going to try to get away from one of my addictions in life, one of the things that I had devoted too much time toward. And i got to say, it... <laughs> It has felt great. Now, I'm not knocking any sports. I've watched it my whole life. We'll probably get more into it. You know, we all go through seasons in life. So there's nothing wrong with watching it and getting really involved and traveling to games and doing all that. I'll probably do it more in the future. But I got to say, if it's completely, if you're like me and you've taken it too far, man, it's kind of nice to get away from it. And you realize as you see your friends talk about the game and the calls and even just how emotionally wrapped up they get in it, you realize, man, it's kind of nice not to be sucked into that vortex of emotions and all. Like, why, why would we let a team that we have nothing to do with, even if you're a donor as an alumni, you really have no control, very little to do with. And why do we let these things, these outside events, impact our moods and I don't know just throwing it out there that um, if you're too into it sometimes getting away from it a bit just feels a bit more healthy a bit more I'm not sure the right word but more stable more healthy and I'm just a hundred times happier because I know that especially since UT was supposed to win this year if I had been wrapped up with the team and they had gone down there and lost again. Oh, I would have, it would have wrecked my weekend. So, anyway, I hope you're enjoying college football. If you got a favorite team or something, shoot me an email. Tell me who your team is, and uh, you all know who your regulars are that reach out to me. I'm interested in who your team is. How much do you guys get wrapped up in it? How much do you watch? How much do you devote? Hopefully, you weren't aren't as bad as I used to be, because uh, it can be too much for sure. All right, so I rambled a bit. Let's let's get into that defense news that it's there's so much to cover.
we're going to begin with a question that was brought up by an article I read in the Kiev Post. And the question is, even though Russia has slowed down this Ukrainian counteroffensive quite effectively, the question is, is has Russia made a mistake with its defensive strategy in the South? And I would refer you to the, and I'll put the link in the Substack notes, but there was an article, as I said in the Kiev Post, that basically makes the argument, or at least puts the point out, that Russia has essentially made a mistake with how they are conducting their defense in the southern front, if you would call it that, I guess, in the area of Zaporizhia. The article is, is an analysis piece, and it goes into a bit... It obviously sets the stage... And I, I should probably set the stage anyway with saying that there's been no major breakthrough since since last week. Same as there was last week, there wasn't any from the previous week. Again, the Ukrainians are clawing and inching forward. They're expanding their breach. But as far as any massive gains, that still hasn't happened yet. That still could happen. That could still not happen. But I've told you guys a, a hundred times, I'm still an optimist. I still believe a large breach, major drive is going to happen. But I don't want to get too off topic with that. But back to the article. The article describes how when the three lines of defense were initially set up in the area of the Zaporizhia zone or oblast, clearly the Ukrainians had a goal the entire time of cutting that land bridge so that Crimea could be further isolated, further, basically, forces could constrict around it and starve it. The Russians knew the Ukrainians would be trying to do this. They knew they only had the Kerch Bridge and they have the land bridge. So the Russians did everything they could to stop them. And so they set up what is obviously a defense in depth. There's three lines. The Ukrainians have essentially breached that first line. But the article goes into some details about how the Russians had built up just miles and miles of multi-layered fortifications. And they're really well suited for a defense in depth. Especially when you consider the artillery advantage that Russia had a couple or three months ago. I think it was last week's podcast. I went into some detail about how increasingly the the Ukrainians are on more equivalent footing with the Russians because they have been targeting so much of the Russian artillery. Regardless, the article describes something I hadn't really considered. These defensive lines and this entire defensive strategy was set up by Russian Army General Sergei Surovikin. So Surovikin looks at the lay of the land and creates this grand strategy for a defense in depth using fallback positions and the artillery advantage that Russia had. However, Surovikin falls out of grace during the Russian 24, basically 18-hour coup 
under Prigozhin. As you know, Prigozhin was the head of Wagner, the private military contractor company, who has since, he stopped his advance. He goes into Belarus. Everyone says, hey, he's going to end up falling out of a window or something. He ends up boarding a plane that is somehow destroyed. We're not sure exactly how. We'll probably never know. Prigozhin's gone. Also gone. Suravikin. So Suravikin is gone. So they hand the command over to another general. His name's Valery Gerizimov. Gerizimov has handled the defense since he's taken over past couple of months or so. And I guess I hadn't really put two and two together. But you read this article and it discusses that Sir, that Geriz, Gerizimov, the new general, is completely changing how this defense has been operated. A few things that the article points out that the new general has been doing. First of all, Gerasimov, he's bunched up most of the forces on the front line, completely changing how they were originally planned to defend in depth with multiple lines, troops, defense in depth. We could probably do an entire podcast about defense in depth. But, and this could be possibly because of pressure from Putin, but Gerasimov moves all these troops toward the front, probably 80% of them, versus, say, 40%, something like that, maybe, and maybe another 20 or 30 behind it and 20 or 30 behind that. He pushes the vast majority of the troops to the front, which is not... It's it's a risky way to do defense. But So, Gerasimov moves all these troops up front. He also, even more crazy, not only did he bunch up these Russians to and force them to hold their ground, often at high cost, he also has been using them to counterattack, to recapture lost territory. And all of, almost all of these attempts have failed. But anytime you've got Russian infantry, armor, etc. leaving their defensive positions to counterattack, that is a very rare operational move. I mean, if you're General Rommel with, you know, German, with Germany in World War II, and you're a very experienced general, and you have very well-trained troops that are very cohesive, operated together, battle-tested, yeah, you can do counterattacks against offensive operations, but they're risky. But the Russians have been doing that, and they've been doing it with very little coordinated artillery support, and they've basically been losing troops in these wasteful, inefficient counterattacks when the Russians could have been sitting in their defensive lines much more protected, in a defense in depth, much more spread out. And so the article basically makes the point that there's a good chance that, in many ways, Russia has done Ukraine a huge favor by basically operating incorrectly for how the defensive lines were originally set up. So it's a very good article. It mentions some of the various units that Russia has used. It mentions reserves that they've moved. It really gets into weeds. So if you're into this counteroffensive and 
Is it working? Will it work? What has been going on? I highly recommend it. It's a free article. It's in the Substack notes. But if you read it, I'd love to hear your feedback. Has Russia made a huge mistake by trying so hard to stop all, basically any chance of progress, hoping to wear down Western resolve and public support? Or have they really blown it by using so much of their defensive power, some of it even almost offensively in these counterattacks, and have they really put themselves in a hole now that Ukraine has breached the first line and Russia has very little left to plug the hole or to stop any future offensive drives from Ukraine? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Love to hear what you guys are seeing, thinking. As you guys know, I love talking this stuff. So reach out to me by email or on social media. Give me your thoughts on that. But very interesting article. If you got a couple minutes to go look at it, definitely give it a read. Moving along, there was some late breaking news. I'm recording this on Wednesday night, but I saw at least one major media outlet announce the next military aid package that the U.S. will be providing to Ukraine. And there's some good news in it. It's 375 million, or I'm sorry, 325 million. Some artillery ammunition. There's some great air defense stuff. There's more anti tank missiles such as tow and javelin and even the short range um, AT 4 missiles. But what there isn't is what Ukraine really, really wanted to hear about, which is the ATACOMS. We talked about ATACOMS last week in depth. For those who missed that episode, that's the Army Tactical Missile System, which those get launched and fired from the High Mars Multiple Launch Rocket System that Ukraine has been using for months and months. If you missed that episode, I've got a link to last week's podcast. I go big time in depth about what they are, what they do, what their range is. It's So I've got a link in the Substack notes. It's at timestamp 1349, so you don't even have to listen to the rest of the show. You can go straight to that. So I'm not going to go into the details of it, but unless this is some sort of, you know, juke move by the Defense Department, it has been leaked that the ATAC missiles will not be a part of this. So unless something majorly changes when it's officially announced tomorrow or Thursday, or which is probably today if you're listening to this, so we'll say today, but I'm talking about the future, obviously. Unless it's just some brilliant media move to act like they're not going to send them and then boom, announce it. Or unless there's some small chance that they don't want to tell the Russians they're coming or sending these and they're going to send them somewhat secretly and delay that they've actually sent that. I'm skeptical that's the case, primarily because... If we, if we, if the Biden administration does too much without keeping Congress informed and the public informed, then especially those Republicans who are against Ukrainian aid, they will use this against him. They will say, you're doing this stuff to threaten World War III. You know how they love to blow that out of proportion, but they will say, you're, threat- you're doing all this stuff recklessly. You're not informing the Congress. So I don't think it's... The the latter thing I said, I don't think it's some, um, let's give Ukraine a week or two to possibly get the, the missiles there and use them in some kind of a surprise move. 
Although part of me almost wishes that was the case. But I think probably the Biden administration blinked and they're going to wait a little longer. But I'm really kind of hoping that it's for publicity reasons, they're gonna, it's a juke move, and that they're gonna juke out the public and the defense, all the defense reporters, and that they're actually gonna send them because Ukraine can definitely use these. They need these. And if you don't know why they need it, check out last week's podcast. I'm not gonna bore you guys again by talking about it. Just a quick reminder if you love what you're listening to and would like to help support the show, you can do so by signing up as a monthly paying subscriber. For $5 per month, you can help us sustain, grow, and improve the show. Again, you can help support the show for only $5 per month. Come and go as you wish. You can find all the details on my Substack page. That's stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Or just find it in the episode notes. Thanks so much, guys. So let's cover a couple of... China-related stories. I suppose if I'm being State Department-esque correct in my language, I would say let's cover a couple of stories about keeping the Indo-Pacific region open. But let's be honest, there's only one country that's threatening shipping lanes, that's threatening to invade a country of 24 million people. And that is China. So I'm not really one to mince words, so let's just keep it real. On the China front, so to speak, there were two stories I wanted to make sure you guys were aware of. The first pretty big one is Japan is taking an additional step to improve their security ties to China. I have briefly in some previous podcast, talked about some moves they were making, but they're making a pretty big one right now as we speak, and they are assigning an active duty military general grade officer to be a liaison and a, I guess, advisor to Taiwan. That is a provocative step. China is not happy about that. Last year, Japan wanted to do this, and it was leaked in the press, and China absolutely lost its mind and basically convinced Japan that it was making the wrong move. So Japan stepped back, and they did not make that move last year, but they are making it this year. So it's a pretty big step. China's not happy in their statement that was put out in the press They said that China is opposed to any form of official exchanges between countries with which China has established diplomatic relations. Obviously, they're referring to Japan there, and they go on to say China urges the Japanese side to draw lessons from history and abide by the One China principle and be prudent in its words and actions on the Taiwan issue. So obviously China believes that it is already the, I don't know the right word, I guess owner of Taiwan. And so they're not real happy about stuff happening around there. But of course, also in the past week, China sailed a carrier task force within 60 miles. All of this is obviously a big deal 
for both China and Japan. But from Japan's perspective, the island of Taiwan is only 62 miles from Japanese territory. And Japan has said that keeping up, keeping open the strait between Taiwan and China is one of its number one national security concerns. Now, in America's case, we've been concerned about the amount of trade that goes through the Taiwan Strait. But for Japan, it's even more crucial. For Japan, that's where the majority of its oil comes from, from the Middle East, straight through the Taiwan Strait. And so, every time that China does something really aggressive, when they send their naval forces around the island of Taiwan, when they threaten U.S. or British ships from passing through the Taiwan Strait, when they fire missiles near Japan, as they've done, these things do not make the Japanese government feel very comfortable with where the direction things are going, which is why they have doubled their defense spending in Japan I covered that back in January. The amount they are spending on long-range strike missiles, advanced fighter jet development, stockpiles of munitions and spare parts, all of which would be needed in a sustained conflict, they are already preparing for a worst-case scenario because they've seen how much China is spending on their military buildup. So... They see, they being Japan, Japan sees Taiwan as an important defensive block, so to speak, as a way to help deter Chinese aggression. I will put a link in the source notes or substack notes so you can read that article if you want to about what what Japan is in the process of doing. So it'll be interesting to see how China responds to this. The other China-related story I wanted to share was an article, a great article in the Washington Post. The headline is, Biden's efforts to court India challenged by assassination claim. Now, the article, this made some news, not very much big news, because so many important stories get drowned out by, you know, salacious stories like, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert at a theater getting a little frisky with her date. Those things, people love to hear those stories. People don't get as into the really challenging, difficult stories. Let me just briefly say, so let me give you some background. America has been increasingly trying to grow closer to India because India is a very large powerful country that can be a very important counterweight to China's expansionist plans. Things were going great. The leader of India visited America. In June, we had the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin visit India. India is a part of a group called the Quad, one of America's most important allies in the Indo-Pacific. Things were going great. And then, about a week ago, Canada announces that India's government has ties to the murder of a prominent 
religious leader in Canada. And so you've got America right in the middle of this triangle. It's not a love triangle. I'm not even sure what you'd refer to, but Canada is one of our closest allies and partners. And most countries frown upon other countries going into their countries with security forces and murdering someone. And so that is what the Canadian government is claiming happened. They've got lots of... It's under investigation, but they have a lot of evidence in order to even make this allegation because it is a very... It's a, you know, it's an explosive claim. And so the White House right now is saying they have deep concern about the allegations and they want a full investigation. But this is not a simple thing. So let me just say that I've got a very, there's a lot of details to this story and all of them are just amazing but I'm giving you a gift link to the Washington Post article about this. It was written by three reporters. It is a great read about why this cleric was killed, why India was likely behind it, how Canada found out, where that puts America. Lots of good stuff. This is the kind of stuff that's way more interesting than the 30-second soundbites you're getting on cable news. But... I highly recommend reading this if you want to get into how challenging some foreign policy decisions are because America clearly tries to have strong records a, a strong record on human rights we try to do the right thing but then we have a little bit of a gray history ourselves even going back to 2010 when we would use drones to take out people in Pakistan in Afghanistan in a few places in the Middle East, a few places in Africa. It was very controversial. It was in including even a U.S. citizen, but this was a program that was started as part of the war on terror under President Bush. It went into the Obama administration, and so the CIA and drones, there's a long history there. So we understand and have a history of basically taking out people that are a threat to our national security when it's in regards to terrorism. And if you read this article, you will see why India felt that it had to do what it did. Although they, of course, aren't going to take credit for it. But the article just lays out the reasons why India might want to hypothetically do this. And then it goes into some of the evidence. And of course, these days, there's people... There are cameras everywhere. Everything you do is tracked. Every transaction you make, every place you stay, every car you rent, every everything. And so increasingly, the world's spy services often get busted doing what has probably been done for decades. But regardless, the United States is in the middle of a challenging situation trying to think of a clean way to say it but a challenging situation and if you read this article i think you you will be immensely entertained but it has put us on a more serious note it has put us in a very challenging situation as a country because there will be political ramifications 
and Canada has been helping the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia and other countries in the Indo-Pacific, Canada's been getting involved in some of that assisted deterrence around Taiwan. So the last thing we need is Canada to want to step back or to want to engage in some type of situation with India. But at the same time, Canada can't let India send people in and take out people inside Canada. There's a proper way to handle things such as that. You know, the, you could try to follow extradition rules through a court process. Generally, like I said, countries frown upon you sending in your spy service and taking out citizens without telling the host country what you're doing. Not good for long term. Um, <laughs> not good for long term relationships. I think that's probably the fairest way to say it. So I got an article in the Substack notes. I paid for that subscription. The Washington Post is a good newspaper, but I know many of you aren't subscribed to it. So go take a look at the article if you get a couple minutes. I think you will uh, you will learn a lot, and it will challenge your thinking on what is right, what should be done, etc. And it's interesting on why NDF even felt that hypothetically it might need to make that move, assuming they did it. Of course, they are innocent until proven guilty. Okay, so we've covered a fair amount of news. Let's get to the best part of the show. This is the motivation and wisdom section. I share these each week because I believe quite strongly that we could all benefit from a pep talk and that we could all reap some profit by hearing deep insight and wisdom, all of which is lacking in our hurried, very shallow world. I thought with the first one, I would share something I wrote a year ago. I was at a beautiful baseball game. It had been hot, but it was growing cooler, and the night was just perfect. And I've got photos that I'll throw into the Substack notes if you want to see them. But it's a full moon. And it was just literally the perfect night to watch some baseball. Young kids playing. And as I was watching this, you know, being a writer, the curse of being a writer is you think deep thoughts. So I wrote something, wrote it a year ago, and I read it again recently. And I thought, man, that's still pretty good. And it's kind of motivating, kind of deep. So I thought I would start this week's motivation and wisdom section by reading it. So here's what I shared. Sometimes I think super deep, super silly thoughts. The curse of being a writer. And I am at the ball field tonight watching my stepson play. And I noticed that full moon. And the players trying their best, dreaming big dreams on a small field. As the light turns to dusk. And it hits me that if you've ever served this country, this is part of what you were fighting for. A land of peace, mostly where kids can pursue dreams and imagine futures you've probably long since forgotten. And this also hit me. In the condensed and compressed time of a single season, of a single game even, you can see things that sometimes you can't see in the drawn-out, exhausting days of adulthood. You can see pitchers shaking off bad pitches and bad innings too. You can see players and teams dust themselves off and regroup for another try 
in an uphill fight. We cheer them on from the sidelines, coaching them up, but I'm not so sure we heed these same lessons ourselves. We don't shake off divorces, unexpected layoffs, and missed promotions that should have been ours. We don't dust ourselves off from the failures of stalled dreams. And we certainly forget that the small field we are playing on doesn't have to be our last. Bigger ones exist. And this is a shame because deep down, a voice tells us that we still can. That there's a full moon happening as well as a night without rain. If you're breathing, there's still time. And there's others who haven't been as lucky as you, who are no longer with us. Millions of them died in faraway lands to give us this opportunity that we have at this very moment. I bet they'd give anything to be here going for it. But besides even that, if we're being honest, these same kids watch us day in and day out to see how we're competing as well. Don't be in the stands or on the bench. You never know who's watching or what might just happen. Dreams can come true. Hope you got something out of that. Now let's just go through the typical list. Let's begin with the first one. Your future needs you. Your past doesn't. Again, your future needs you. Your past doesn't. Next one. Degrees get you jobs. Skill gets you freedom. Again, degrees get you jobs. Skills get you freedom. Next one. Act as if what you do makes a difference. It does. This is such a good one. Again, act as if what you do makes a difference. It does. I used to have in my intro a little part about how if you don't think you're important, imagine those who you are caring for, you know, primarily the most for. Imagine if you disappeared. Imagine if you weren't helping the older parent, if you weren't helping the child you have, etc. So what you do definitely makes a difference. Again, that quote was, Act as if what you do makes a difference. It does. Next one. Forget all the reasons why it won't work. Believe the one reason why it will. Dang, that's a good one. Again, forget all the reasons why it won't work. Believe the one reason why it will. That was a good one. That definitely hit home for me this week. Sometimes I get a little discouraged, so half of these quotes are as much for me as they are for you. Next one, let your hustle be louder than your words. Again, let your hustle be louder than your words. Next one, if you're never scared or embarrassed or hurt, it means you never take any chances. It's a pretty deep one. If you're never scared or embarrassed or hurt, it means you never take any chances. Next one. You shouldn't focus on why you can't do something, which is what most people do. You should focus on why perhaps you can and be one of the exceptions. Again, you shouldn't focus on why you can't do something, which is what most people do. You should focus on why perhaps you can and be one of the exceptions. 
that's a good one because a lot of times we see people already doing that thing that we feel sort of called to do or drawn toward and we think well they're already doing it and they're better than me or they got this big following and we just sell ourselves short we do, we forget that people all of us are unique and we all bring different and unique skills and talents and characteristics to the table which may hit an audience that isn't already being met so don't sell yourself short this next one is a quote attributed to Franklin D. Roosevelt. It's pretty good. When you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. <laughs> Again, when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. Don't ever give up, right? Next one, keep grinding. Your day is coming. Again, keep grinding. Your day is coming. Next one, shock everyone. Do what they said you couldn't. All have those people that doubted us, those coaches or teachers or family members who kind of shrugged you off or maybe didn't take you as serious as you want. And sometimes holding on to that grudge, it does provide some fuel. I don't know if it's necessarily the most healthy thing, but I do kind of believe in using whatever fuel is around you until you can find better fuel or more mature fuel. So this one definitely was something I've always done. So, again, shock everyone. Do what they said you couldn't. Next one. We should not criticize those who trip by taking a more difficult than usual step. It's a pretty deep one. We should not criticize those who trip by taking a more difficult than usual step. It's pretty good. It's so easy to, we're all so critical these days anyway, but if someone is trying, I just, I don't know why we beat up people who are taking leaps of faith. Next one, continuous learning, continuous improving, continuous succeeding. Again, continuous learning, continuous improving, continuous succeeding. That's pretty good. Next one. People of accomplishment rarely sat back and let things happen to them. They went out and happened to things. It's a quote by, it's attributed to Leonardo da Vinci. Again, people of accomplishment rare, rarely sat back and let things happen to them. They went out and happened to things. Next one. Talent won't get you paid, but hustle will. Oh, that is so good. Talent won't get you paid, but hustle will. All of us know those talented people who just don't put in the work or they don't even believe in themselves and they're literally better than anyone around them, but talent won't get you paid, hustle will. Let's do a couple from the Bible now. First one's from Psalms, chapter 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. It's a good reminder in this world of everything's about me. Again, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. 
Next one. This is from Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a good one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. So many men and women have sacrificed, fought, and died to keep this country together the past 240 years. Please work daily to unite our country again. The vast majority of Americans are decent, loving, great people. Also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. For those who are listening for the first time, let me say a bit more about myself and the podcast. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior infantry Marine who dropped the sword and picked up the pen. After joining the Marine Corps at the age of 17 to serve four years in the infantry, I exited military service earned a degree, and spent 10-plus years in the news business, initially as a reporter, but then going on to start a weekly newspaper in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013. But once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 12 books, and while it's true I'm still writing, I'm now here as well, a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I do think that much can be gained from discussing these issues and creating a community where we intelligently discuss the troubles confronting us, and where we work to come closer together and respect each other's views with more patience and kindness. A house divided cannot stand, and I strongly believe that more unites us than divides us. I will not remain silent while politicians, seeking their own personal gain, try to throw gas on a dangerous fire, doing their best to tear apart this country so that they can advance to a higher office. We face great challenges as a country, but America has stood together for more than 240 years, and it's only together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. So let's get a little better informed, and let's work to get a little more united as a people. Thank you for being patient and allowing me to share that monologue. I think it's important people hear what I'm about, and I think it's also important my regular listeners hear this message enough that it sinks in, that it affects what they believe that it affects how they act. We need to hold and cherish the beliefs that got us here today. Beliefs such as kindness, patience, and a strong belief that our best days lie before us. These are the beliefs that got us to this point, and they're also the beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. Thanks again for your patience and for listening. I know it's not the sort of fast-paced, really hip, Twitter-friendly, TikTok-cool message that fits most podcasts that go viral, But maybe we've got a few too many podcasts that are like that. Maybe we need to go back to something deeper, to something firmer and more solid, 
to something we can build a foundation from. And that's what I'm offering. Now, we're almost to the end of the show, and I'd be a fool not to mention my books. I write fast-paced books, and when I say fast-paced, I mean like really fast-paced books. And if you read the reviews, people say they are gripping, compelling, and full of twists and turns. I've written a dozen books to date, and I've been fortunate to have sold more than 70,000 copies. And guys, these are independently published. There isn't some big company pushing these. These are straight-up word-of-mouth sales. So if you're one of those who've bought a, a book or more than one book, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. If you're one of those folks who've just shared links or told others about me, it's a great way to support the show. All of my books can be found on Amazon, and they are primarily about military thrillers. I've got a series about a Marine Corps sniper. I've got some police detective ones, but you can find all of them on Amazon just by searching my name, Stan R. Mitchell. Make sure you include the R. You will find them no problem. You will see they all have averages of more than four, uh, four plus stars and thousands of reviews on them. So they're great gifts. They're also great for yourself if you're interested in them. So thanks so much, guys, for sticking it out with me. I hope you got something from the show, and I look forward to seeing you guys here, same time, same place, next Thursday.